You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. blessing for me to be here. Uh, what a privilege. I've only heard of this place and now to be here in live person with you all is a treat. Uh, just so you know a little bit about me, I'm, I'm originally from Illinois and uh, I actually studied at Ozark Christian College and at Lincoln Christian Seminary. So go Ozark, go Lincoln, and now I serve at Boise Bible College. So go Christian higher education. How's that? And uh, what a treat for me to be here. It started out last night with James. James uh, is a recent grad of our college, and he's serving now at, at the ranch, and he gave us a tour, and that was, it's just a beautiful spot. And then we had supper with Bill and Sherry, and man, the dinner table conversation was just a lot of fun. I mean, from discussion about hot sauce on potatoes and the size of our feet to Bill's famous rub on smoked mesquite. I mean, it was amazing, and brisket. So it was, it was a real blessing uh, to be there last night and uh, enjoy this trip with you. David and I are just passing through. Uh, we're doing this week-long trip, just kind of touching with every church that we can in Montana that has an affiliation with the school. So we're logging, I don't know how many thousands of miles, and we're talking, having a lot of good windshield time. But I want to express to you, on behalf of Boise Bible College, how grateful I am, the college is, for the long-lasting relationship with this church. Uh, this is my first time to be with you, and so I want to say thank you personally for how you have sent so many students to be trained at the college, and our affiliation with the church, with the ranch, with the camp. Uh, we don't treat that lightly. It's a valuable asset for our college, and uh, I want to encourage you just to continue to disciple and to prepare and to pray for the generation of leaders that will come out of this part of Montana that, that will be trained and equipped for leadership in the church, whether it's Boise, a Lincoln, an Ozark, that they would be equipped for the next generation of leading churches like this. That's why we exist. And you have a, a huge role in equipping and preparing and training those students to then take another step to get further education and preparation. Because the rescue mission is large, isn't it? And everybody loves a good rescue story, don't you? I mean, by definition, rescue is, is about freeing someone who is in danger, someone whose life is on the line, someone you want to save from harm. Like Say Young Kim. Say Young Kim was a young girl. She lived in New York City. It was the summertime when school was out, and she was home. Her mom was off to work, and there was no AC in her apartment three stories up, and so she was trying to get any breath uh, any fresh air at all coming through the apartment. And say young Kim, this young girl, was sitting by the edge of the window. And she wasn't very big, but enough that she got a little drowsy and leaned against the screen of that window a little too far. And lo and behold, the screen fell out of the window as well did say young Kim. Three stories down. But before she hit the cement, an apple tree broke her fall. An apple tree right below the window. She hit the cement, no broken bones, a few scratches and scrapes, what if that tree wasn't there, saved by an apple tree? <laughs> Let's get to the core of the issue <laughs> here. Or Dan Farrell. Dan Farrell was in the youth group where I was the youth minister, my first youth ministry. 
Dan loved his car. He had a little small Chevette. Can you picture that small little thing? But it had lights underneath it, and it was lowered. It had amazing wheels and tires, and he tinkered on the engine. It was humming. And he was always found doing something with his car, spending money that he had earned from his work to pour into the car. And, and he was underneath the car one day. It was off to the side, not the paved drive, driveway, but off to the side of the gravel driveway in the house. And, and he was underneath, and he was cranking so hard that the jacks that it was on with that gravel lost its footing, and all of a sudden that, that engine was pinned against Dan's chest. Can you picture it? This small little car, a hot, souped-up car with his legs sticking out, down on his chest, couldn't say anything, almost took his breath away. And then the neighbor pulled up in the cul-de-sac and noticed Dan was working under his car, but it looked a little different than other days. Lo and behold, he realized the jacks had slipped and the car was on Dan. And the neighbor called 911 and Life Flight, a helicopter system in that area, came and landed in the cul-de-sac and jacked the car up and Dan was saved by Life Flight. But my question is, what if that neighbor never noticed or never acted on what the neighbor noticed? Everybody loves a rescue story, right? One of my first ministries was in the Portland, Oregon area. And on the west side of the Mississippi, Hillsboro Air Show is one of the largest in the western part of the, of the nation. And I loved going to the air show there in Hillsboro. And it's a small little airport, but they'd have the Blue Angels come in. And one of the, one of the shows that they had was a, a wing walker. You know, the guys that are on the biplane that are strapped on top of the wing. And they have this contraption. And they, and they take off. And the wing walker is on top of this plane. And the biplane is doing, doing loop-de-loops and and all sorts of corkscrews, and there's smoke coming out of the tail, and the wing walker, you know, hundreds of miles an hour is, is kind of enduring that. It's quite a feat. I don't think our bodies are made to sustain that. But it, at the end of the routine, the, the plane just kept flying around this one time. Now, in the Hillsborough Airshore, you, you can hear the whole commentary from the tower to the pilot because they, they broadcast it through the radio. You just tune in, you listen. And the tower started explaining what was going on. The landing gear of the plane was malfunctioning, and the pilot knew it. If it was just him, he would have made it land. But with a guy on top, he wasn't sure. So they were kind of scrambling for about 30 minutes, figuring out what to do. And fuel began running short in that biplane. And here's what they decided to do. And we're hearing all of this. They decided to get a pickup truck and run it down from the end of the runway and, and get it going to the same speed as the plane and the speed kind of lowering itself and going as slow as it can. And that wing walker unstrapped himself and lowering down in the bed of the truck. Sounds like a good theory, right? Let's put it to practice. So they got this pickup truck at the end of the runway and it starts buzzing down about 80 miles an hour and that plane kind of slows down and gets low enough and that wing walker unstraps himself and climbs down and does fall into the bed of that truck. Can you imagine getting saved by a Ford? <laughs> How about getting saved by a Chevy? Oh, my word. What if, though, the driver thought, that's stupid. I ain't doing that. Everyone loves a good rescue story. Let me tell you about one. I'm guessing you're pretty familiar with this one. 3,500 years ago, several million Israelites were being unjustly enslaved in Egypt. God was on the move, though, to rescue them. Exodus chapter 2, we hear the story that God heard their groaning. He remembered their covenant with, he made with them. 
He saw them and he knew their plight. God was active. He was doing something. And for, God is, is going to show that he's for his people at this moment. So he begins to work out his rescue plan through a guy named Moses. If you remember the story about Moses born from a Hebrew slave girl in Egypt in a day when there was a decree put into effect that no Hebrew boy was to live after birth. Mom did a risky thing, sparing his son's life, putting Moses into a little ark. It's actually the same word as Noah's boat, a little boat into the Nile River, hoping that someone might find him. And lo and behold, a daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh drew him out. That's the word Moshe, from which we get our English word Moses. Drew him out. That's why he was named that way. And then the young girl employed a, high, a Hebrew slave to take care of this boy. Guess who she employed? None other than Moses' biological mom. He's like a Hebrew with dual citizenship. He's raised there in Egypt, the best Egyptian education. He's getting pyramid design classes. He's, he's working on and wearing the finest Egyptian clothes, eating the finest foods. He's living in luxury. Meanwhile, his Hebrew kin are being mistreated as slaves right there. One day, Moses saw an Egyptian beating up his fellow slave, and so Moses came to the defense of his fellow kinsmen. you got to love his heart for those that are defenseless, but he went too far and he took the life of that Egyptian. And so Moses fled. He left it all, all the luxury out of fear for his life into a brand new territory he went to try to start over. Moses' heart for justice came out again when he saw those seven daughters of Jethro, that priest. The daughters were drawing water out of the well and some shepherds came up and kind of bullied them around. And Moses stood up for those girls, drew water out of the well for them. He looked Egyptian they go home and tell dad about this Egyptian that saved them. And long story short, he ends up marrying one of those girls. Moses begins living this new life, a comfortable life in, in Midian. It's a safe life. All the while, his fellow Hebrews are groaning and they are being brutalized in captivity. Out of sight, out of mind. Apathy was setting in to Moses. Moses' life was rescued in order that he might be a rescuer. Everyone loves a good rescue story, but Moses doesn't want to be written into this rescue story. Thank you very much, God. Although he's saved by God from being slaughtered and destined, therefore, by God to be a mouthpiece, to bring hope in despair, Moses struggled to step up. He hesitated. He hesitated to help. He wanted to become a participant in God's plan to free his people, but he hesitated with that idea. He, he didn't want to do anything in, that, in the sphere of that genocidal Egyptian brutal dictator out of the safety of his own life. He hesitated to help. God was preparing Moses, his little boy, to rescue those people, but Moses didn't want to do anything with that. God, I don't want to do that. Option B, please. Moses was safe. Why go back there? It's unsafe. My comfort, my family. Why do that? Comfort counters mission. Would you agree? Comfort counteracts mission. When God calls Moses, Moses raises what on the surface appears to be five reasonable questions to God. 
But beneath the veneer of these questions, there are actually five excuses to God. He simply gives some excuses why he's not the man for that job. All five excuses are reasons that you and I might even use. So as we examine these excuses and this conversation he has with God, I hope you see that when God calls you into mission, into this rescue mission, he will make you adequate to do the job. God's uniquely positioned Moses, and he's uniquely positioned us with our life today to benefit, to save others. The question is if we're willing. Exodus 3, turn in your Bibles there. We're going to go through parts of 3. When God jumps into Moses' life, Moses isn't doing a whole lot of special stuff. He's doing normal life routine stuff. He's doing the ordinary stuff. He's doing nothing great. He's just tending sheep and the flocks. He's doing his chores. The same as he does every day, but God gets his attention in the strangest of ways. Remember how he gets his attention? With that bush, and it's on fire, and it's not being consumed by the flames. Quite an amazing thing. In verse 4 of chapter 3, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. The scene goes from ordinary to extraordinary to then holy. God called Moses by name. And Moses answers, here I am. Tell you what, that's the right answer when God calls you from a bush <laughs> or when just God whispers to you. Here I am. I'm here. How can I be of service to you? So he's got Moses' attention and God doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't beat around the bush to get to Moses' heart. I'm going to try that one more time. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He's going to invite Moses into this rescue mission, so he gets right to it in verse 10. Therefore, come, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people out of Egypt. But Moses said, and this is going to be a pattern, but Moses said five times, we're going to see that phrase. Moses said, this refrain, my interpretation, God, I don't want to do that. First excuse, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Now, remember, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. Who am I that I should go there that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Moses' first question, it's a legitimate question. Who am I? But there's excuse built into this, I can't do that. And Moses gets the reply from God, and God says, well, I can, Mo. Verse 12, certainly I will be with you, Moses. God always uses people who couldn't do it alone. That's why he called Moses, because he was always promised to go with them. Our first excuse will likely be that I can't do it. Anybody said that? Don't show your hands. <laughs> I can't do that. And you know what? That's absolutely true. There is no way you can. But God can. And he will. He will because his presence empowers us to do the job that he's asking us to do. He'll go with us to execute his power through our feelings of inadequacy and inability and our weakness. I am with you, God says. I will go with you as I send you. And that alone is a good reason to obey the call. But Moses, he responds with another excuse. I don't want to do that, God. And I think given enough time, we may actually say that too. Second excuse, verse 13, Moses says to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, if I go to the sons of Israel, the God of your father has sent me to you. Now, what if they say to me, God, what if they say, well, what's his name? What shall I tell them? Moses' question is a legitimate question. Hey, God, what name should I tell you? Tell them that, that you are 
But the excuse is, I need a little more info here. I don't know enough. If you're waiting until you know enough before you answer God's call, you probably already know enough to do it. You probably know enough to share your faith. As basic as it is, you share the nuts and bolts about Jesus Christ being the rescuer, the deliverer of who you are from your captivity of sin and what he did miraculously through your shame and how he's transforming you and you set how he set you free and how he changed you and transformed you and set you on a new trajectory of life. That's easy. That's your story. You just tell how your story merged into his story and you're gospeling. That's enough info. Agreed? Just tell your story. To be a witness, it doesn't mean you tell what you don't know. You tell what you do know. So God gives a powerful answer. God tells Moses his name. It's, it's, it's a self-given name to God. He named himself this name. His name is holy. His name is powerful beyond measure. Verse 14, God said to Moses, they ask you that question, here's the answer, Moses. Verse 14, I am who I am. Thus, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in English, I am is equivalent to the Hebrew Y-H-W-H, those letters, Yahweh. I am is equivalent to Yahweh. God's not got a first name, middle name, or last name. He's got like four letters, like, like specialized license plate letters. Yahweh, <laughs> that's my name. His name means something like, I am because I am. It means something like, I will be what I will be, or I will be what I cause to be. Here's what I am means. I have always been, and I will always be. You go tell your brothers and sisters that in Egypt. In Scripture, whenever the name of God is uttered to a servant, whenever God utters his name to a servant that he's invited into service, whenever he gives his name, God's power is unleashed on that servant. His emissary is now empowered by that name. Moses is invited to be God's ambassador, to be a, a courier of the creator, to be a mouthpiece of the mighty one. And God sends with him all that he needs, the name. His presence is really all we need. But Moses, he won't get sidetracked. He will not be deterred from making a case against getting involved with this. From out of his obstinance comes excuse number three. God, I don't want to do that. Chapter four, verse one. Moses said, what, what if they will not believe me or listen to me? What, what I say, for they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses' question, it's, it's a fair question. What if they don't believe me? But there's an excuse in there. I need some proof, God. I need some proof to go back, to back up what I'm going to say here. God's answer, you don't get it, Moses. My name and my presence is enough for you, so you don't believe that, I'll give you three proofs, three signs, three miracles. Do you remember these? I'm not going to read the scripture. You know it. Hey, what's in your hand, Moses? Well, I got this staff. He goes, throw it down. And what happens to the staff, everyone? Turns into a snake. And then God says the ridiculous, pick it up by the tail. Who does that? Nobody does that. Moses does that. And it turns back into a staff. Stick your hand in your bosom. And he does. What happens to his hand when he pulls it back out? Leprosy, sticks it in, and it's healed. And one third sign, he says, this third sign is going to be proof when you get there. You go to the Nile, you get some, some river water, you pour it out on the dry ground, and it will turn to blood. 
God gave Moses three signs, three proofs, evidence that what he said is true. Look at this first one for a minute, okay? Just for a moment, God asked Moses what's in his hand. Moses says a staff. Do you think Moses said it this way? Let's do a little Charlton Hessen for just a second. Did he say it this way? This is a staff. This staff is a divine tool. It will move mountains, divide waters. It will conquer empires. All will fear the staff. I don't think Moses said that. I think he said, I got this stick. I I got it from the backyard. I kind of cleaned it up a little bit. I use it when I go hike in the mountains. God, I need something more than this. What are you doing? God loves to use what appears to be useless. He loves to use what appears to be worthless. He loves to use what appears to be normal, mundane, ordinary. He loves to use what appears to be out of date, what appears to be irrelevant, to do something amazing, extraordinary. Watch what God does with your ability, with what is around you, beyond your understanding. But Moses, here's that phrase, had not yet run out of excuses. Moses said, I don't want to do that. Chapter 4, verse 10, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Verse 11, now, therefore, go, and God says, and I will, I will be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what you shall speak. Moses' excuse, I don't know what to say. I'm not very eloquent. God answers, dude, I made your mouth. If I did that, I can put words in it easy enough. But even the words, there's something beyond that. God's name is what we carry. Moses heard the call. He actually listened to the call of God. He had a conversation with God about that call. And then he lined up reasons after reason to duck out of doing that job. Same excuses that you and I are tempted to use today. I can't do it. Don't know enough. What proof do I have? I'm not a a good talker. God answered each excuse with, so what, Moses? I'm with you, and I'll be with you. I'll take care of you. Your job, Moses, go. I'll do the rest. Deal? Although fighting and losing battle, Moses has one last-ditch effort. Moses says, God, I want to do that in verse 13. Moses said, oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Please send someone else to do it. Turn to your friend for a second, your neighbor right where you are, and look at them and go, would you go in my place? (laughs) Send someone else, right? Send anyone but me. (laughs) You remember what Isaiah said, Isaiah, when God called Isaiah, here I am, send me. Moses, here I am, send me. He, (laughs) Aaron, my brother, he's such a better talker than me. Verse 14, God got angry with Moses and anger kindled against Moses and God could have wiped him out, but he unleashes grace on him. He wants him to participate in his rescue story. So 
He's got a mission to accomplish, and so he allows Aaron to go alongside Moses, and God works through that dynamic duo to rescue millions of innocent, oppressed people. He makes the ordinary extraordinary for his purposes. Again, my big thought. When God calls you into his rescue mission, he makes you adequate for the job. If he calls you, he'll give you what you need. Moses is more fearful, though, about his inabilities. He's more fearful about trusting God's ability. I mean, Pharaoh, he knows Pharaoh. Moses is hesitant to participate in God's rescue mission because Pharaoh's powerful. Moses knows, and plus, Pharaoh knows Moses' history. He knows the dark side to Moses. He doesn't want to go back to that shame. Moses is more fearful and faithful. When God calls you into his rescue mission, he'll make you adequate, no matter what. Do we trust who he is? Do we really trust he's moving beyond what our eyes tell us? Beyond what I think about myself, or what others think about me? Do we trust him? When God calls us into his rescuing mission, he will make us adequate for the job he's asking us to do. Do you believe that? Let me put some practical action steps to this, four practices. You might jot these down. Four things to participate in his rescue mission today. Here's the first practice. Don't ever say, God, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Don't ever say that. Unplug your ears, listen to his invite, look around, get prepared, get ready, get pumped, pack up if you need to move to where he's calling you to go. When God says, here I am, how may I be of service is the right answer. When he calls, just get ready when he calls. Second practice, pray for the specific, by specific name of one nation that does not have the Bible yet. Do you know any? There's multiple thousands. Find out one nation that doesn't have the Bible yet, and you pray by name every day for that nation. And then add to that one person, one nation, one person. Person you work with, a person in your family, a friend, a co-worker who is far. If they don't have the Bible, they're far from God. They don't have a relationship with God. If they're not in relationship with they're far. They're not near. Pray by name. Specifically listen as you pray for that one nation, that one person, for who, how God would direct you in your prayers. Specifically about how to pray for that person, that nation. Overcome apathy for the lost, for the faraway friend, by praying by name daily for them. Who's God uniquely positioned you near? Who has he uniquely positioned you near that is enslaved by sin, by shame, by guilt? They're away from God. Who has he put right near you? By name, pray. Pray daily for them. God will keep it in your heart that way. Third practice, this summer, practice the presence of God. Practice the presence of God. Christian, if you're a Christ follower and Christ is in you, he is with you. Actually, literally, he's more within you. (laughs) By his Holy Spirit, he is within you. Practice his presence. 
I mean, set a daily reminder on your phone. Put it on the mirror when you're getting in the shower. So something to remind you he's present, he's near, he's close at hand, he is within you. Remind yourself of that. Practice the presence in the routine of the day, not just in the morning prayer time or a meal. Practice his presence. Get this parallel. God is present through a name, Yahweh, to save and deliver Israel through a man named Moses. God is present and active through a name, Emmanuel, who will save and deliver people through a man named Jesus. In fact, those who are one time far from God will be brought near, and they will proclaim he is Emmanuel. That means God is close to those we're at one time far. Jesus is that voice from the burning bush. You realize that, don't you? Yahweh is Jesus. Same guy, same God. Jesus' name proclaims hope. Jesus' name is deliverance and help. He is with you in the job right where you are to live out hope. Yahweh with us. Trust his presence. Practice waking up as though he is woken up with you. Go to bed as though he's with you. Talk with him daily, regularly. Don't ever say amen. Practice not saying amen to your prayers. So it's a running dialogue. It's not just a formal thing. It's a discussion with him. Practice like a good close friend, not like he's galaxies away on some throne. He is that. And he's also this at the same time. Fourth practice. With God present... Praying by name for a nation, for a friend, with no excuses. Fourth practice, view yourself as an adequate instrument for the job. Picture yourself as an adequate tool in his hand. Imagine that. Maybe it starts with this. How do you see yourselves? In other words, do you view yourself like a bucket or like a pipe? A bucket. What's the purpose of the bucket? It's designed to hold things. Dirt, manure liquids. Pipe, what's it designed to do? It's designed to convey things through it. Fluids, gases, a pipe, a pipe, or a bucket. I mean, it collects things. It, it holds things. It receives things. A pipe transfers things through it. A bucket is an end to its own means. A pipe is a conduit to benefit someone else. In God's economy, a pipe is definitely more useful to him than a bucket. He graciously entrusts you with a talent, with a gift, to be an others-serving conduit, an others-serving pipe of his saving blessing, not a self-serving receptacle. Consider what happens, though, if a pipe gets confused and thinks it's a bucket. What's supposed to pass through it gets stuck, clogged, is in need of being roto-rooted. <laughs> so we can go back to being what it's designed to be. That things flow through it, not just to it. In fact, our whole bodies are made with a pipe blueprint. Arteries, fluids flowing through your body. What happens when the artery gets clogged? What happens if your colon gets clogged? Or other bowel movement necessities get clogged? 
It's not very comfortable, isn't it? That's not the way we're designed. It's supposed to be moving through. Everything kind of gets hindered. Normal activities get blocked. That's not the way God designed it. If your own pleasure and your own happiness and your own holiness is the goal for this Christian journey, then may I just say spiritual constipation is the next product. We get bloated spiritually. God has created us to be high-capacity pipes because he wants to pipe huge amounts of blessing and a good word and hope through you to rescue others. But Satan tries to mess with our identity. Satan tries to mess with how we view ourselves from the way God truly sees us. Satan wants you to be a bucket. Satan wants to use a primary tactic of neutralizing us from being pipes. And one of the ways he does is fear. If he can make us fearful, what do he wants to put you on your heels so you become hesitant, you become defensive and reactive. What will others think about me? What if I fail? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Don't have enough skill. Fear. Fear causes us to ask, can God really work through me? The answer Absolutely. God knows our failures, and he still chooses to remake you and me and empowers us by his grace to be pipes of blessing to others. Think about it. Think about it. What life did Jesus live, a bucket or a pipe? Did Jesus come to collect and to hoard or to transfer on? It's really comfortable in a bucket. It is not missional. A pipe is the only way. It means risk. It means you dare God and you trust God. Through Jesus, God rescued us by his grace. And aren't you glad he was a pipe and not a bucket? Receive Jesus. Don't keep him to yourself. Look to transfer the blessing on. It's now our turn. As long as we have breath, it's our turn to be on this rescue mission. He wants to use you to rescue others. Everyone loves a rescue story. What if you're a part of it? In the story of Exodus, God perfectly positioned Moses to be a pipe despite his feelings of inadequacy. In our own story, God perfectly positions us to be a conduit of hope to transfer blessing onto other people. Not that we are confident in ourselves. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves. As though something is coming from us. We're the source, but only that our sufficiency is from God. Out of our inadequacy, God's sufficiency is magnified. In other words, he... And his strength is most evident when we are most incapable to do it. And in those times of being most inadequate and feeling most weak and unqualified, at that moment, God goes, let's go do that together. That's why it's good to never forget. When God calls you into his rescue mission, he and he alone will make us adequate to do the job. That can't happen without some prayer. 
So let's pray. I, I don't want to just close in prayer. May I? I want to lead us into some prayer. You good? Almighty God, this is a encouraging and invigorating and stretching and challenging message. The story of Moses and how he was so hesitant out of fear. We're so easily prone to fall into his steps to create excuses. And so here we are, Lord, all of us together, our heads bowed, and we just want to honor you, but we're going to confess we don't always feel capable. So here we are. What do you want to do in us? There's rescue to be executed. People right around us, this county and our nation, Bibleless nations. What do you want to do in us? Would you meet us where we are? And like Moses, would you not put up with our excuses? Would you remind us of your power and of your presence and how you make us adequate to do the daring, risky, frightening job you're calling us to do? And would you then, by your Holy Spirit, remind us that as we step, you're with us. And you'll work through us like a pipe. Jesus, we want to close this this morning saying thank you, thank you, thank you for coming and living a life not like a bucket of safety and collecting, but as a pipe, and it costs you everything. And we want to make you proud, Jesus, and it's just hard. I appreciate the faith that's in this room. Many here have taken steps of risky faith. Would you continue to remind them that it's not their strength, but it's yours working through them? Would you work through this church? Would you work through the ranch? Would you work through the camp? Would you work through each individual here on this rescue mission? And thank you for making us adequate for the job. In your name, Yahweh, we pray.